of weeks ago, we, um, we had a look at uh, marriage, and today I want to look at parenting and uh, relationships in the church, and I've simply called this message Grace for Parenting and for Relationships, and um, I had a wonderful week this week just in my own devotions, and one of the things that God spoke to me was out of a little Spurgeon reading. I want to share that with you, because it simply says, we sang it this morning, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And uh, Spurgeon says this. He says, if none of God's saints were poor and tried, we should not know half as so well the consolations of God's divine grace. When we find the wanderer who has nowhere to lay his head, we can still say, I will trust in the Lord. When we see the pauper starving on bread and water, who still glories in Jesus, when we see the bereaved widow overwhelmed in affliction, and yet having faith in Christ, what honor it reflects on the gospel. God's grace is illustrated and magnified in the poverty and the trials of believers. Saints bear up under every discouragement, believing that all things work together for good. Well, they're good. And out of apparent evils, a real blessing will ultimately spring. That their God will either work a deliverance for them speedily or most assuredly support them in trouble as long as He pleases to keep them in it. This patience of the saints proves the power of divine grace. We don't want to hear these things sometimes, do we? <laughs> There's a lighthouse out at sea. It's a calm night. I can't tell whether the edifice is firm. The tempest must rage about it. Then I shall know whether it will stand. So with the Spirit's work. If it were not on many occasions surrounded with stormy waters, we should not know that it was true and strong. If the winds did not blow upon it, we should not know how firm and secure it was. The master works of God are those men who stand in the midst of difficulties, steadfast, unmovable, calm amidst the bewildering cry, confident of victory. He would glorify God must set his account upon meeting with many trials. No man can be illustrious before the Lord unless his conflicts are many. If yours, then, be a much-tried path, rejoice in it, because you will be the better to show forth the all-sufficient grace of God. As for his failing you, never dream of it. Hate the thought of it. The God who has been sufficient until now should be trusted to the end. Amen. Doesn't that just encourage you? That is incredible. All sufficient grace of God. And we want our trials to be removed from us and just say, God, if you take away this difficulty, everything's going to be much easier and better. God simply says to us, my grace is sufficient for you. I've just found personally that such an amazing encouragement to me. Whatever the trials, and sometimes there are many trials, sometimes there are few, but they are there, 
as we persevere, the grace of God abounds in our life, measure upon measure upon measure. And I trust that encourages you this morning as you read Ephesians, because we need much grace for marriage, and we also need much grace for parenting. <laughs> All right? And uh, Paul's comments this morning that we're going to look out of Ephesians chapter 6 are all in the context of him saying, be filled with the Spirit. Remember, we had a look at that maybe a month ago now. He says, don't get, don't get drunk with wine, but be, be filled with the Spirit. And, uh, there's that constancy that comes in our lives. There's a steadfast joy that comes in our lives when we're under many, all kinds of pressure and trials that is evidence that they, we are filled with the Spirit. Sometimes we look for this spectacular event, don't we? The great infilling, the revival, the place where many are healed, and those are all wonderful things. But Paul's saying here that there's another evidence of the Holy Spirit that is seen in a steadfast life, a joyous life, a life that can sing when it's in trouble, a life that can be constantly joyful, whether the circumstances are good or bad. That, he says, is real evidence, too, that you are being filled with the Spirit continually. You are filled with the Spirit. And that's the context of his comments around marriage, and now this morning, around around parenting and uh, other relationships. And there's this joyful consistency, and the evidence of that is in our, seen in our relationships, that we get on well with each other. Yeah? That's evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, and evidence that we are filled with the Spirit, that we get on well with each other. And Paul says that actually works out. It works out in a, in a, in a, in a specific way for husbands and wives. And then he's, today he's gonna, we're going to look, and he says it also works out in a specific way for parents and children. And he talks about slaves and masters. There's a right flow of authority in our lives. That's what he's driving at. He's saying there's a tone in our homes. There's a tone in the church. There's a tone in our workplace that comes because we are filled with the Spirit. Okay? And so I'm going to read from chapter 6, and he says simply this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Well, this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it might go well with you and that you might live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so this is the theme that Paul's continuing now. It's still about being filled with the Spirit. It's still the context is that of good, fruitful relationships. And he addressed marriage uh, in the previous verses, and now he talks specifically about parents and children. And for me, it's it's an amazing thing to to think that Paul really never had a family of his own. We don't know if, if he was married. Uh, we do know that he didn't have a family, because when he, on the evidence of the Scripture in terms of his ministry, he didn't have a family at that stage. So maybe he never married. Maybe he was a widower. Maybe his wife left him when he got saved. We don't know. Speculate about these things, but we don't know. So the, my point is simply this. If he didn't have a family, what authority does he have to speak about families if he doesn't have a family of his own. Well, I simply want to say this, that the Word of God is the Word of God. And uh, whether we feel qualified to preach the Word of God or not, the Word of God is still the Word of God. And there's no person on the face of this planet that is qualified to preach in every single area of life and not feel somehow disqualified. (laughs) So I want to just say that to encourage you this morning. God's Word is still true. His Word is still able to break open things in our lives, regardless of who's preaching it, whether the person preaching has a family or the person preaching does not have a family. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, there's no perfect husband, there's no perfect wife, there's no experts in relationships, this is a journey for all of us, 
some of these things we get right, some of these things we get wrong. But we, I love uh, Corinthians, it says we, we, we carry this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. How many of you feel like a jar of, a jar of clay? Fragile, and it's easy, easily broken. I feel like that often. Paul says, no, we, we carry this treasure in jars of clay. And I want to say this morning, there are no perfect parents, all right? And um, it's, just a, it's just the degrees that change. All of us, every single one of us, are really products of dysfunctional families. We are. We are all products of dysfunctional families because there are no perfect parents. There's no perfect dad. There ain't no perfect mum either. And I'm certainly discovering as my own children grow up that already I see the flaws in my own parenting in their lives. And they are growing up in a dysfunctional family. Because why? Because I'm slightly dysfunctional. And so is Helen. Yeah, we are. We are not perfect. And so for me, that's the most incredibly liberating thing. Because actually God is at work and as we just depend on His Spirit and walk by His Spirit, He uses all, with us with all of our flaws and our brokenness, and He uses us perfectly to form Christ, and help to form Christ in our kids. Isn't that amazing? God is so gracious. So, so Paul starts, and he speaks to kids, and perhaps we should have had the kids in this morning. Eh? Because Paul simply says this. He says, children, obey your parents. It's right. Do it as to the Lord. Isn't that phrase interesting again? Because Paul repeats that a lot in this passage. As to the Lord, obey your parents. It's right to give them honor and respect. It's right for children to give love to their parents. And he says, just do it. It's right for you to do it. And do it as unto the Lord. But even as he says that, we can see now that he qualifies that. He always, he's incredibly wise, Paul. He says these very strong statements and he always qualifies things as he goes. And I want to just say, that's a basic building block of the family, obedience in the family. And if we... If we ignore that, if we don't expect that from our kids, it's a, we're going to have trouble, all right? And uh, we will suffer. You might not suffer when your kids are small and cute and cuddly, and they're three or four, but when they're 16, 17, and 18, and they haven't learned some measure of obedience in their lives, there will be suffering for everybody. And so I don't say this in a condemning way. I don't say this to keep legalism on you. I say, I say this because there's a reality that unless our toddlers learn that no means no. When they are running around a swimming pool and you say, no, Jesse, please don't jump in the water. You can't swim there. Please, Jesse, let's negotiate about this. No, no, Jesse just needs to know at this stage to save his life, he needs to know no is no. Because if he falls in the water, he will die. So there are some stages in our lives that we need to know what no means. And it's good because it will save our lives. And it's very interesting because Paul, this is the only time that Paul in the New Testament quotes the Mosaic law in relation to Christian obedience. It's the only time he quotes the law. And he quotes this law, which had a promise for Israel that if they dwelt in the land and if they obeyed their parents, it would go well with them and they would have long life and stability in the nation. So Paul is he's quoting that commandment, which is the fifth commandment. And he says a very interesting thing. He says that, he says, you should do that so that it goes well with you and you have long life in the land. That's what he says. So I want to say that in this context is that we've already seen that Paul has encouraged us over and over again that we are full of the Spirit, that we live by the Spirit. And as Michael taught us last year, as we walk by the Spirit, we automatically fulfill the law anyway. We fulfill it accidentally as we walk by the Spirit. 
But Paul is reminding us of that as he's been talking about being full of the Spirit. So that's the context. And so he is quoting, a, he is quoting the law here, but he's not quoting it in the same way because the gospel perfectly fulfills the law. And what do I mean by that? I mean this, that if you and I to benefit from what Paul is saying, if we were under the law, it meant that we would actually have to be living in Israel. How many of you live in Israel right now? None of you do. If we were under the law, if we disobeyed our parents, we would be killed. That's the penalty of the law. I'm not joking with you. That's the penalty of the law. Under the law, the Mosaic law, if children disobeyed their parents, they were killed. All right? Aren't you grateful we are under grace? Now, that's what Paul is saying. He's using it as a picture. He's saying, in the gospel, you don't have to live anymore in Israel. You're no longer under the Mosaic law. There is the church, the new, the new Israel that God has created, and in this kingdom, grace reigns. And yet you still have the full benefits of God's promise. And he says, if you obey your parents, and you honor your parents, whether you're 47 like I am, or whether you're 12 like Jesse is, if you obey and honor your parents, it will go well with you, and there will be stability in your life. That promise is still true. That's what he's saying. But we don't have the same penalty. We're no longer under the law. We're under, we're under grace. And for me, that's a beautiful thing. So as I honor my dad, I, 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 I um, seek to honor him. My, God's promise to, to me still stands that actually it will go well with me as I walk by the Spirit. I will have stability in my life. That's the promise. All right? Now, Michael Eaton says an interesting thing, thing about this because... Um, in parenthesis, it says, is this not the first commandment with a promise? Well, actually, it's not. There are other commandments that come with a promise that come before this. What Michael is saying, and I was reading one of his commentaries, he said, we should, it's more accurate to translate it as this is the supreme commandment. This is a, a commandment that is perhaps greater than some of the others because it has this amazing promise of stability that goes with it. That if we obey, if we give ourselves in joyful obedience and honor our parents, whatever our age, there will be stability the grace of God in our lives that we simply walk by Spirit. So that's Paul's instruction to children. It's very simple. It's just uh, all of us are children to somebody, and he says, you honor your parents. You, you, you love them. You respect them. You show them due honor, and it will go well with you. Right then he says something to parents. And he says, dads, fathers, <laughs> don't exasperate your children. Okay, so he's calling children to obey, but then he's got a very strong thing he says to Dad, he says, Dad, don't exasperate your children. Don't make them angry. Don't frustrate them out of their heads. That's my translation. He says, no, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we need to give some help to our kids, all right? They to be those that obey and grow up in this, in this environment where there's love and submission and obedience. It's a mutual thing. Uh, how are we going to help them? Well, the first thing I want to say, and I want to just please... I want to, I've got into trouble in the past because when I've preached in the past, I've been quite strong on some of these things and people said, no, you're too legalistic. But such high expectations. Well, there are some broad brushstrokes. So I'm going to give you some broad brushstrokes. You work out your parenting as you want to with your wife in your relationship, all right? I'm not telling you what to do. I'm saying these are guidelines and these things are good guidelines. I'm convinced of that, all right? So in the home, if our children are to willingly work with us on team and to be a loving, gracious environment at home, what's the first thing we should do as parents? Well, I think we should be fair. We should be fair. Because children smell unfairness like that. 
don't they? Those of you who got kids, they know when you're not being fair, when you're not treating things equitably. I've often had that, had that with my boys. Uh, we, we, I don't want to dishonor my boys, but we're going through this thing now of, uh, of um, what movies are appropriate to watch at what age. And Matthew constantly reminds us that at age 12, he wasn't allowed to watch the movies, so why should Jesse be able to watch the movies now? And he's right. Actually, he's right. And so we have to navigate through this minefield as we go forward, all right? So be fair in your home and work that out with your kids. Secondly, Paul says not only don't exasperate them, but he says bring them up with instruction. So there's some guidelines that we can have in our homes. And I want to say, for me, the primary thing that I'm learning with my kids is that the home needs to be a gracious place. It needs to be an environment of space and an environment of boundaries. Now, you've got to say those two words together. Space and boundaries, all right? And I trust you were, 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 were encouraged with that Spurgeon quote this morning because, for me, the point is just as we, we long for grace from God for our lives, so our homes need to be gracious places, gracious communities where our parents, as parents, we can extend that same grace to our children. Amen? So, this is a walk by the Spirit. This is an adventure. Parenting is an adventure. And uh, Romans 8.14 encourages us and says, those that are led by the Spirit are called the sons of God. And so, as we walk by the Spirit, as His sons, we extend grace to our children. Hopefully, they're going to grow up in a gracious environment where they learn something of what God is like from us. And that's an incredible, terrifying responsibility, isn't it? That's the reality, that our kids are going to get an idea, a picture, form something of who God is in how we live our lives. Now, I can't take that pressure off you. That's just the reality. That's why we need the grace of God. That's why we can't do this without the grace of God. Ultimately, for me, I want to just encourage you that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. He's our rabbi. He will guide us as we walk. He'll say, go this way, don't go that way. He's our rabbi. He's our instructor. He's our teacher. And ultimately, that needs to be our dependence. I love reading books about parenting. But ultimately, at the end of the day, our, ch our children are individuals, each unique, and all of us need the voice of the Spirit to say what to do in the specific situation of that child. Amen? It's not one size fits all. It's clumsy. It doesn't work. So, I want to put it to you this morning that actually parenting is a partnership. You and your wife, together, with the Holy Spirit, sake of the future of your children. That's a partnership we enjoy. Okay? And with all things in life, there are different seasons, aren't there? There are different um, things that we walk through, and, and there needs to be a recognition of that in our own lives, and a recognition of that in our children's lives. And they are real things. Now, I want to put it to you this morning, for example, how many of you have experienced that just as you have your first baby, your career is also taking off? Why does it intersect like that? Why does it have to do that? It's like frustrating. Just as you're really having success at work and your career is starting to take off, you have a baby. And then there's a complication that comes. Or how many of you found uh, that when your, your kids are teenagers, you're also going through a midlife crisis? It's like not convenient. How did that happen? Just as my kids are getting to this difficult stage, I too am going through, God, who am I? What am I doing on this planet? It's not good. It doesn't intersect well. <laughs> but you have to... Recognize that. And it's, 
it's the reality, and we have to, together with God and with good friends and with the Holy Spirit, sort of navigate through these different seasons of our life. Yeah. It's an adventure. That's all I can say. It's an adventure. Most of all, we need a humble attitude before God and genuine friendship with others to help us through these seasons. How many of you discovered also that uh, your children are so different? Yeah? Some, you might have one sibling that's strong-willed and extrovert. You might have another, another son or daughter that's more introverted, more compliant. Their temperaments are different. Their talents are different. Their abilities are different. And all of their diversity is to be celebrated. And for me, it's trying to say, okay, how can we help those things find their place in the family and to be celebrated in the family and to be enjoyed in the family? That's a gracious environment. And so we've got to ask God to help us to be responsible, but also to treat each child individually, treat each one uniquely. And that demands flexibility from us as parents, doesn't it? And some of us are not easy to be flexible. Some personalities are not as easily flexible as others. And that's the challenge. Husbands and wives, partners together. It's easier perhaps for one part of the relationship, one partner to be more flexible than others. But that's okay. So all I'm trying to say is that there's a reality that different styles of parenting for different age groups as well. And there's a constant adaptability that we need to walk in as moms and dads. And, and uh, there's a vast difference between a baby and a seven-year-old. There's a vast difference between a 12-year-old and a 16-year-old. And for me, the boundaries that I think do need to be in place need to become elastic Elastic boundaries as the kids grow. As they start to take responsibility for their lives, you want the boundaries to be elastic. And if we don't allow the boundaries to be elastic, all we're going to produce in the end are rebellious teenagers that hate being in the family. Because they're too tight, too constrained. We don't want that, do we? Do we? No, we don't. So I want to encourage you, as you journey with God and as you journey with your friends and journey with your family, to, to ask God to help you to know when the boundaries need to be a little bit wider and when they need to be a little bit tighter. And it's not, it's not, not one size fits all. It's not all the time the same. That's the challenge, isn't it? As our kids are going through different stages of their lives and perhaps they're, they're experiencing some things at school that are difficult for them, well, then the boundaries need to be a little bit wider. When they need comfort, the boundaries need to be a little bit tighter. We have to be walking by the Spirit to hear God whisper to us and say, no, 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 it's a season to open it up. No, 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 it's a season just to get your arms around them and make it a little bit tighter. Are you with me? What I'm trying to say is, can we not be legalistic parents? We all want grace. I don't want to be in a church that's legalistic. I hear grace preached in a church. Well, is our home environment also a grace environment? Our kids can grow up free. Amen? If we don't, we're gonna, if, if we are putting our expectations on our kids and our, um, perhaps our unfulfilled aspirations from our own childhood, you know, we're putting those on our children, they're going to grow up living compulsive lives. And for me, that is the most terrifying thought, that they're going to be motivated by compulsion rather than love. For me, that's been the thing in my own life, in my own journey, that God wants us to be motivated by love. We're looking at the prodigal son. Amazing parable. You know, what Jesus says about the prodigal son is an incredible, powerful truth. 
not only about the younger brother. I think actually Jesus is more angry with the older brother. The older brother is the religious one. He's done the, the right thing all his life. He's obeyed his dad, but you know what? Both of them just want what their dad can give them. They don't want their dad. Both of them, the older and the younger brother. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks' time. We want love to be the motivation, not things, not inheritance, not what we can get out. Amen? We want God. God is our reward. <laughs> and the older brother hadn't learned that. Still wanted God for what God could give him. Wanted the father for what the father could give him. Just as the younger son wanted the father for what he could get. Let us not be parents motivated like that. Motivated like that. Right, so teenagers, I'm discovering with teenagers that they need to hold and value what you hold and value. That is the thing that's going to hold them when they're away from the home. When you're not there to say, do this, don't do that, this is a good choice, that's not a good choice. Unless it's in their heart, it's not going to happen. You can't beat it into them. It can only be there as you've been an example, as you've walked along, and as God has done it in their own heart. Set them free. All right, so let's ask God to help us with this thing of boundaries, that they're not too tight and they need to be loose, and they're not too loose and they need to be tighter. And then the third thing Paul says is that we need to discipline them, discipline children, and um, I want to just say that for me, that's summed up in rebuking our children kindly and not harshly, and I think for me what goes hand in hand with that is humility, and I think it's vital that we learn as parents to say sorry to our kids where we've missed it by being ungracious, where we've missed it by being untrusting, where we've missed it by being driven by the wrong things. Perhaps we're driven by fear in some areas instead of love. And hand in hand with that goes talking and listening, talking and listening, talking and listening. My wife is a good example for me in that. She talks to our boys a lot. What are you feeling? What do you really think about this? I'm trying to get better at that. Talking, listening, talking, listening, being humble to say sorry when we need to say sorry. I think this. It's not important to win every argument with your kids. Sometimes you can go into a home and it's like parents are fighting about the kids, about silly things. You will wear that dress. I don't want to wear that dress. You will wear that dress. You will do it like this. You will eat this for your breakfast. You will do this. You will do this. It's like we're behaving like siblings instead of parents. Does it really matter what color the bedroom wall is. Does it really matter how long or how short your child's hair is? Does it really matter what color their hair is? Does it really, really matter? Is it a matter of life and death? Is it a matter of life and death? I think sometimes we fight about the wrong things, and the things we should be fighting for, we ignore. Choose your battles. Can I encourage you as moms and dads? I'm learning this more and more. Choose your battles around things that will save your kids' lives. Doesn't matter what color their hair is. Doesn't matter what t-shirt they wear. Really doesn't. <laughs> Doesn't matter some of the music they listen to. That's a matter of life and death. Okay, so I'm saying we've got to work work together and help each other and get some wisdom from our friends. Don't be legalistic. All right. Okay, that's what I want to say. And it's very simple. And then I want to go on and just, Paul says some things to both workers and employers. And I found this fascinating as I was, I was, I was, I was, I 
as I was uh, just reading and praying this week. He says this. He says, slaves, now this is written to the Ephesian church, so there would have been slaves in the church and there would have been those that were masters of slaves in the Ephesian church. So Paul is very amazing thing that he says here. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of our service, as a people pleaser, but as a servant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as unto the Lord, and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, so he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Man, this is incredible, if you really have a look at what Paul is saying. This is absolutely incredible, what Paul is saying here. The language and the tone of these verses is amazing. Our world, that we, the modern world, is full of rights, isn't it? These are my rights as an employer. These are my responsibilities as an employer. These are my rights as an employee. This is what I'm, I'm required to have a certain amount of hours that I work and a tea break at a certain time. And, and, uh, and not only that, I've got a certain amount of leave that's due to me. And if I don't take my leave, I must get paid out for my leave. We have got such rights. I agree with that. I think it's good that we, we do the best for people and that our workplaces are good, good places. I've got no problem with that. But I want to just say, Paul is talking here to slaves in the Roman Empire, and I want to say their conditions of employment were perhaps the worst that the world has ever seen. Would you agree? They were not conditions of employment that we would say were appropriate today. Far from it. They had the worst conditions that they were. And what does Paul say to them? He says an incredible thing. He says, to the, he says, obey your masters as to Jesus. From the heart. Not just trying to please people, not sucking up to your master. You obey him from the heart as if you're doing it for Jesus. And knowing that that good that you do, knowing that that good that you do, it'll come back to you one day from the Lord whether you are a slave or whether you won your freedom. That is incredible. That is the gospel. That is radical. And I want to say, Paul can say that to, to, to um, slaves in the Roman Empire. How much more can we not learn from that as we live and work in a modern environment? And Paul simply says to slaves, to those that are workers, and we're going to look at slavery just now, to those that are workers, to those that are employers, employees, companies, Christians, and that kind of thing, he says, you do this. You be obedient. You be a straight, upright, straight-talking person. Do your job as unto God and to please Him and not to please anybody else. And you live for His reward. It is incredible. Now, I studied uh, political science. It was one of my subjects at uh, university, and uh, Karl Marx wouldn't like this. Karl Marx wouldn't like this. He would say, you know, his little phrase was, religion is the opiate of the people. In other words, people preach a Christianity that um, deceives people. And actually, there are workers that are oppressed by economic things, uh, the economic structure, and they actually need to be liberated. And how they kept in place is that Christianity has kept them in place by promising that one day when they die, all suffering will be uh, removed and it'll all be well in heaven one day. And that's how economically people are kept in check. And that's what Mark said. And uh, well, was he right? I do, believe, I do believe that we need to be equitable. We need to pay fair wages. I believe all of that. 
I think the gospel liberates us into those times of freedom. Is it true that workers shouldn't be exploited? Yeah, I believe it's, they need to be liberated. Every worker needs to be liberated. It's not right that bankers are paid, paid huge bonuses when the people that are working in the banks don't get a share of the profit. I, I, I believe that's true. These things need to put right. So how do we understand then what Paul is saying here? Well, I've quoted this before. It seems to me that George Orwell was right in Animal Farm. We were all equal, but some are more equal than others. And uh, I found this out when Petri and Mike and myself visited the Highgate Cemetery. This is the Highgate Cemetery. That's where Karl Marx is buried. We went and visited Karl Marx's grave. You would think if you were preaching a gospel that said it needs to be equal for everybody, that uh, he would be buried in some little plot somewhere, just a very simple grave. Wouldn't you? You want to know what the biggest monument in the Highgate Cemetery is? Karl Marx's bust. It is massive. You can't miss it. So much for us all being equal. Some are definitely more equal than others. So maybe you don't like the thought that I'm just trying to expound now that Paul expresses here. Maybe you've got some, some problems with it. Well, just give me a couple more minutes, right? Because Paul also has a word for Christian employers, or in this context, context masters. And he says this, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. He says, Masters, you do the same to your slaves. Stop threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Isn't that incredible? Paul is saying there's a radically new way of relating to people whether you are slave or free. That's what he's saying. He's saying how slaves in the, in the gospel respond to their masters and how masters in the gospel respond to their slaves is radically different and it transforms communities from the inside out. That's what he's saying. It is incredible. Paul doesn't say to slave owners, free your slave. He says this. He says, you work for their good with all of the energy and all of your heart that you have. You work for their good. And what applies to those slaves applies to you as their masters. It's radically different. The gospel is radically different. And you might say, well, that seems crazy. That seems odd to modern European minds. It's unfair. It's unjust. It cannot possibly be right. Well, I want to just say, hang in here with me for a little while longer. The point of what Paul is saying is that the gospel takes root in people radically and slowly, and it produces change from the inside out. And as it produces change, communities start to change. That's what Paul is saying. I've been reading a book by a guy called Niall Ferguson, which is a, a history book. I love reading history. And this is a book called Empire. And it talks about how we, from England, colonized the whole world. And uh, we started off as pirates, which is true. Started off as pirates robbing the Spanish and taking their money from them. And then, gradually over a period of time, because of the, the Navy, England started getting involved in trade. And over a period of time, that's how colonization came, was through trade. But one of the big issues in the 1700s was slavery. Now, I find this incredibly interesting. We, re, we uh, sing Amazing Grace as an anthem of the evangelical church. It's a theme of redemption. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, it saved the rest like me. I once was lost, uh, now I'm found. Etc. Et John Newton wrote that, and you know John Newton was a slave trader. This is the incredible thing. He was still a slave trader for six years after he got saved. Isn't that amazing? In fact, he became a first mate 
on a ship. After he got saved, and he then purchased his own ship to trade in slaves for another six years. After he was saved. How does that work? Surely if the gospel comes, you're set free. Surely if the gospel comes, your whole life changes. Yes, it does. My point is this. Doesn't mean he wasn't saved. No, he was saved. We expect instant transformation, don't we? We expect instant transformation in every single area of our lives when we are saved. My point is this. The gospel takes root in us slowly, and we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. And over a period of time, he began to grasp the absolute horror of what he was involved in, and he began to change. And then, after many, 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 many years of people, most of them Christians, Wilberforce and others, who were on fire by the Holy Spirit from the inside, they campaigned for years and years and years, and eventually the trade in slaves was abolished, and then even later, many, many years later, slavery itself was abolished. And only in America, another hundred years later, was it abolished because of the Civil War. Isn't that incredible? The gospel takes root in us slowly. I want to read you some of his diary entries. This is in, uh, taken from when he was master of a ship called the Duke of Argyle between 1750 and 1751. On the 7th of January, 1751, he exchanged eight slaves for a quantity of timber and ivory. But he felt overcharged when he saw that one of them had bad teeth. This is not this is gospel. This is from his own journal. And he said, a fine man slave, now that there are so many competitors, is nearly the double the price it once was. He doesn't even refer to slaves as human beings. He refers to them as it. Just a commodity to be bought and sold. This is after his slave. I'm not trying to be obnoxious. I'm not trying to... I'm just trying to say to you, the gospel does take root slowly. And I want to encourage you as we live in this community, as we live in this nation, the gospel takes root in people slowly. It transforms us from the inside out by the power of the Spirit slowly. Are there many things that need to be overcome? Yes, there are. Are there evils in this world that need to be overthrown? Yes, there are. Are there children that need to be raised in, parent, in homes that are gracious? Yes, there are. Are there marriages that need to be restored? Yes, there are. They those things come by the power of the gospel as we preach the gospel, as the gospel takes root in us and transforms us from the inside out. People are set free. As individuals are set free, Families are set free. As families are set free, communities are set free. As communities are set free, nations are set free. Is there a quick fix? Is a big revival going to fix it? I don't think so. It's not the lesson of history. And revivals have come and gone. Do I want a revival? Absolutely, with all of my heart. That certainly accelerates things. But are we in this for long haul? We're in this for Jesus comes back. And we preach the gospel. And we, we fight for things that need to be uh, torn down. We fight for qualities. We, we fight for child rights. But not for that, for that sake, for the gospel's sake. Because of Christ. Amen? So, what I'm trying to say to you, and I'm finishing now, that Ephesians 6, Paul, what he said in Ephesians 6 about slaves and masters, we still need it today. Do you think that we are free, free of slavery in the world right now? There are more slaves in the world now than there have ever been. They are economic slaves. 
People that are free that work for such little wage that they are in fact slaves. And we can all enjoy Primark, can't we? We can. We can all enjoy Primark and get our t-shirts for £2.50. What, where were they made? By whom? Uh, I must look for, uh, I must, I must uh, saying Primark has done anything wrong. I'm just saying there are many, many places where clothes are made where basically slave labor, isn't it? Okay. This is going to be a popular message. But through, eventually, my point is this, eventually through the sheer force of Christian opinion in society, societies are transformed. I put it to you that where, where there's not a majority of Christian opinion, the opposite happens. In our world today, where there's not a majority of Christian opinion, the, the word is still full of slavery, still full of economic slaves, and preaching sex is still needed radically in the world in which we live. And all that we looked at over the last couple of weeks, our relationships in the church, our relationships between husband and wife, relationships between uh, masters and slaves, is a common thing that Paul says over and over again. And he says, in all of these relationships, we need to look to Jesus. We need to do things as unto Christ. That's the motivation. And when we do things unto Jesus, in our, as we treat our, our wife, as Jesus would have us treat our wife, as we love our husband, as Jesus would love, as we parent our kids, as Jesus would want, then the relationships come into reality and come into the correct perspective. And that's what Paul is saying over and over again. So let us preach the gospel. The best way, I'm convinced, it's the best way of changing a society on an ongoing way. It's the best way to transform marriages. It's the best way to help parents raise their kids. It's the best way to see society liberated from all kinds of evils. Preach the gospel. As we look to Christ and all these things, the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? I want to encourage you with that this morning.